So hello and welcome to Mayday, your flight podcast about everything you don't want to happen on your plane. I'm your host, Caroline Miller, and today we are diving into, pun fully intended, Japan Airlines Flight 2, which also dove into the ocean off the coast of California. Uh, To close out 22, we've picked this flight because it embodies optimism and good humor in the face of something that was very, very scary. And that kind of wraps up 2022 in a nutshell. So with me today is international oboe superstar, Nancy King. Hi, Nancy. Hello, Caroline. I'm so happy to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so happy that you're here. Um, the It's funny because the, the big storm is happening. And so there was a bunch of confusion with, you know, how this recording was going to go. And Nancy was so nice. She's like, well, we could do it together. I was like, that sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> yep. And I have listened to almost every episode of the podcast from the very beginning, from the very first one you did. I'm a little behind right now, so I haven't heard the last couple because of the holidays, but I'm super excited to catch up on those and to be on this one with you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I often have these hyperbolic introductions about the guests on the show, like whatever superstar, but Nancy is literally an international music superstar with like classical music and the oboe. So if you play the oboe or if you know somebody who plays the oboe, you might already know about her. So yeah, here's your first non-oboe, non-music podcast episode. I'm happy you're here. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I don't really know anything about flight disasters, except for what I've learned on your podcast. So I'm an open book. Hey, that's the best way to do it. Um, So are you ready to go all the way back to 1968? Oh, sure. Love to. I was six years old. Yeah. So time travel back. You're six. (laughs) The 70s haven't even happened yet. So Japan Airlines Flight 2 was a regularly scheduled passenger flight from Tokyo to San Francisco. And it took place on November 22nd, 1968. And the aircraft that day was a DC-8 named Shiga that was named after the Japanese prefecture. And it was scheduled to take off from Tokyo at 5 p.m. And it was going to fly through the night. And then it was going to land in San Francisco at about 10.15 a.m. after about a nine-hour flight. Uh, The plane was pretty new. It was like six years old and it had about 1,700 flight hours. Takeoff was delayed a teeny tiny bit, about 36 minutes, because there was a little problem with the pilot's instrument panel, which is an issue because the altimeter had kind of gone rogue and it was giving inaccurate information. Um, And an altimeter is kind of a non-negotiable piece of information, especially when you're flying over the ocean at night. Uh, Because as mentioned in our Aero Peru episode, If you're flying over the ocean at night when everything is just pitch black, you don't have a visual reference for anything. You just have to blindly trust your altimeter to tell you how high you are. Uh, But as far as anybody knew, the ground crew in Tokyo had fixed the issue. And with it being fixed and everything else looking good, the flight took off for its trans-Pacific flight with 96 passengers and 11 crew on board, giving the flight a total of 107 souls on board. Our cockpit crew that day consisted of 46-year-old Captain Kohei Aso, uh, and he was a very highly accomplished pilot, and he already had about 10,000 hours of flight time, so technically he's a master of flight. 
and he had also served as a flight instructor for the Japanese during World War II. And I don't really know what he did, uh, so I'll just skate past that part of his life. Wow. So he was definitely very experienced. Very, very experienced. Um, And, you know, he was working with an American co-pilot who was also a captain. This guy's name was Joseph Hazen. And he also had about 10,000 flight hours. And he had served with the U.S. Marine Corps during World War II. And he had also been a pilot for seven years after that with Air America. So you had two captains from very different backgrounds working for the same airline. And it was Captain Hazen's first year of employment with Japan Airlines, so he's still pretty new. Um, But Captain Aso had been there for a very long time, so uh, the co-pilot was absolutely following the captain's lead in everything. Especially because uh, Captain Aso had over a thousand hours of flight time on the DC-8, and Hazen only had 18 period. Just just 18. Less than a day's worth of hours. Wow. That's not very much to be going on such a long flight. I know. Yeah. And especially in the late 60s, I mean, I imagine that having a gigantic trans-oceanic flight like this was a pretty big accomplishment to have this given to you as a pilot. I assume. I wasn't around, but that's what I think. I think so. In fact, I think a lot of planes would stop in Honolulu to get more fuel. So if they were going San Francisco to Tokyo, they'd have to stop in Honolulu. Um, So this was probably relatively early for them to even be going across the whole ocean in one leg. Yeah, you know, that's true. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're totally right. They used to, I mean, planes used to stop all the time. Like you, you look at those old flight paths from, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, and there's like four stopovers for a five-hour flight. And today that would be unheard of, but that's just how it used to be early on. And 1968 is still very, very early in terms of the history of aviation. So it's it's impressive that they were flying this route. And it is surprising that they put somebody with only 18 hours of experience on the aircraft on this route. Um... But you know what? We'll, we'll see what happens. I won't blow anything. Um, <laughs> so the other people in the cockpit were 40-year-old flight engineer Richard Fanning and 27-year-old navigator Ichiro Suzuki. And for the first eight hours of the flight, everything was totally fine. Nothing noteworthy happened. But as it sometimes happens, once they started to descend into San Francisco, things started to get a little dicey. At 8.54 a.m., Tracon in Oakland, California, picked up Japan Flight 2 on their radar. And, whoops, I love knocking over my lip balm. And (laughs) the controllers got in contact with the pilots and, you know, they said, hey, you're cleared to land, but be prepared to adapt because there's some changing bad weather outside of San Francisco right now. Uh, So we're going to have you take an approach to San Francisco that has you going kind of the long way around, around an outer marker. The visibility at this point was very poor. It was only three quarters of a mile or 1.2 kilometers. And they advised them to be prepared to potentially go into a holding pattern at 8,000 feet. And so this is when a very perplexing series of decisions was made and not by the person you think would make them. 
Captain Asso, the guy who had been flying in this aircraft for over a thousand hours, he's the person that thought to himself, you know what? The weather's bad. The visibility is terrible. And this is the this is the time to do something I've never done before. <laughs> I, I'm going to try something new in these very bad circumstances. Uh, and what he did was is that when he began to descend from his cruising altitude of 37,000 feet, he was starting to go down and he he thought to himself, you know what, I'm going to attempt to do an automatic coupled instrument landing system approach. And he'd never done that before in this plane, ever. But he decided today's the day to try something new. Who needs flight simulators when you can just try it out, I guess? Wow. So he had no reason to try this, except that he like was curious if he could do it or not. Yeah, basically. I think he realized, like, you know... I don't really know how to do this thing, but in theory, if I do this correctly, I think it would help, but I've never done it before, so I'm just going to kind of rely on my past experience. So I don't think he was like being flippant or negligent. I think he was just thinking, you know, I'm pretty confident I can do this right, and I theoretically know that if I do this right, it's going to make things easier, so I'm just going to try it. And that was kind of his thought process. Got it. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who need a refresher or don't know what I'm talking about at all, uh, an ILS approach or an instrument landing system approach essentially means that the plane itself is taking care of part of the approach for you. It's using its radio beacons to communicate with a localizer that's on the ground at the airport. And those two radio sources communicate with each other to help guide the aircraft towards the runway. And this is so the pilot can focus on other parts of the landing sequence. And it is very helpful in situations like this where visibility is bad. If you have bad weather, like if you're landing in snow, for example, if you're in a whiteout, which most of the country is right now, I'm sure that pilots trying to make landings are going to be using an ILS system a lot because making a visual approach in bad weather is very difficult, especially when you're going over the ocean. So I understand why he did this, but also I wish he would have practiced it beforehand. When the flight was handed over to San Francisco Bay Tracon, Captain Asso did inform the controllers like, hey, I'm flying 8,000 feet and I know that I was told to maybe hold here. What do you want me to do? And Tracon was like, you know, nope, you can keep going past 8,000 feet. You can continue to descend. You don't need to go into a holding pattern. And so Captain Asso was like, cool. So then he descended to 6,500 feet. And then moments after he descended to 6,500 feet, the captain got in contact with air traffic control again. And he said, you know, I would like a long final approach into San Francisco that's a straight line instead of going out and around this outer way marker. Uh, And the reason he asked for this was so that Again, it's a lot easier to go in a straight line when the weather's bad than to try to do a bunch of turns and maneuvers, especially over land. Um, And because the captain was trying something new with the ILS approach, the altitude and the heading of the aircraft would now be controlled by the autopilot and the flight director, which are technological processes of the DC-8. He would not be manually monitoring either of these things. So altitude and heading are totally controlled by the plane at this point, not the captain. And so he made a few heading changes uh, in accordance with the ILS guidelines and what the controllers were telling him. 
He was in very good contact with air traffic control. He was doing everything right as far as he knew. Uh, Eventually, the captain did capture the localizer. And so now the radio beams from the plane are talking to the radio beams on the ground. And then he formally changed the autopilot to an ILS approach. And now the plane has total technological control over altitude and heading. He slows down the plane. And at this point, he's descending and descending and descending. And now he's like, oh, wait a second. My pressure altimeter, which is guiding the plane down because I'm using an ILS approach, my pressure altimeter is saying the wrong thing. It's not giving me the right numbers because when he would level off the plane, the altimeter would say that they were climbing, even though they were not. Oh, wow. That's a problem. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's definitely a problem. And so when you're flying blind, one of the worst things that can happen to you as a pilot is your plane telling you that you're higher in altitude than you actually are. And Captain Asso realized that that's exactly what was happening here because not only was the altimeter saying, oh, we're climbing, even though the plane was leveling off, the co-pilot's altitude readings didn't even match the captain's side of the plane. So the plane didn't even agree with itself as to what the altimeter was supposed to say. And so at this point, he's like, okay, this is this is bad. Uh, I guess we're going to have to rely on visuals, which we don't have because the weather is so terrible and it's so foggy. Uh, and now it's too late because they have the ILS approach going and they can't see. So <sighs> they're kind of screwed at this point. <laughs> right. And that fog in San Francisco, when it settles in, it's like pea soup. You can't see a thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, anybody that's in California knows, like, sometimes you can't see two feet in front of your face. Like, there's all those pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge kind of emerging out of the fog for half a second and then disappearing. And that's exactly what these pilots were flying through. Wow, that had to be really scary. Yeah, I I do not envy either of the pilots at this point, especially realizing, like, I have made a mistake and this is absolutely my fault. I did something I've never done before and having that sinking feeling of, oh, okay, not only have I made a bad mistake that is going to have repercussions for my career, but it's going to have repercussions for my career, assuming that I live, which given the severity of my mistake is now up for debate. I cannot imagine having that level of regret happen to you at work, you know? Yeah. Wow. So at this point, like we're saying, not only is it very foggy, but also the clouds themselves are hanging really low over the water. They're only about 300 feet above the waves of the ocean. And the captain had set his minimum altitude alarm to 211 feet or 64 meters. And so what that means is he told the plane, you know, if we get below 211 feet, scream at me, tell me I'm doing something wrong. But again, the altimeter is broken. And so it's going to get much lower than 211 feet before telling him anything is wrong. So in reality, the plane had gone way below 211 feet in altitude and it had not told him where it was. But then eventually they broke through the clouds and his co-pilot started yelling, I can't see the runway light. We're too low. Pull up, pull up, pull up. And so at this point, they realize like, oh God, we're like two feet above the ocean, literally just a handful of feet above the ocean. So Captain Asso, he pushes the throttles forward and he pulled back on the yoke trying to do a go around. But at this point it was too late because when they pulled up on the nose, 
the back of the plane went into the water and the back landing gear crashed into the water at 177 miles per hour. Wow. And it hit it so hard that the plane actually bounced off of the ocean like a giant skipping rock. So it skipped and then it hit the water and then it skipped again and then it hit the water a third time and then it skipped again and then it hit the water a fourth time. And amidst the fog, the plane sank to the bottom of the ocean. No! Oh my gosh! But the ocean was only seven feet deep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're very fortunate they skipped those three times because it probably propelled them toward the shore. Oh, yeah. You know, I was thinking about that. Imagine the amount of force it has to take for a ginormous plane like that to skip like a rock multiple times before settling down. That must have been insane to be on that plane. Yeah. I mean, I, I've i heard that hitting water with force is basically the same as hitting concrete. So I wonder if it even really felt any different than hitting the runway and, and bouncing a few times. But they, if they were looking out the window, they certainly saw they weren't on the runway (laughs) yeah oh my god can actually can you imagine being a passenger on a flight and you're like oh we're probably landing soon and then you look out the window and you are landing in the water yeah i would just cry (laughs) yeah it'd be so scary there was a lot of panic on that plane at that moment well and that's the bizarre thing is that you know they hit the they hit the water the plane sinks to the bottom of the sea and the flight crew and the flight attendants and the chief purser, the chief purser's name was Kazu Hashimoto, they immediately sprung into a- action because they're like, okay, this is very strange. We need to manage the passengers. We have almost 100 people here. And so the chief purser gets on the PA system and then he realizes, oh, the PA system is broken. And so then he just starts yelling at people as loud as he can so everybody can hear him. And he says, quote, be quiet. The plane has reached the bottom of the sea. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) And so at that point, everybody apparently just looked around and they weren't panicked anymore. They were just really confused. What had ended up happening was that they hit a sandbar So it wasn't even like they were very close to shore. They were still two and a half miles from shore. But it was this insane one in a million stroke of luck where they hit a sandbar that normally only has four feet of water on it. And it's a very small area. So if the plane had gone almost anywhere else, it would have sank and everybody would have drowned. And that day... Normally it had four feet of water, but that day the tides were strangely high, so it had seven feet that day. And that extra three feet of water is what prevented the plane from crashing into the sand. And so it was this really magical combination of an unusual high tide and just sheer luck in terms of where the plane went down. Because the captain didn't know. Obviously, he didn't know where they were. So it was just pure luck that they picked this tiny little spot on just the right day at just the right time where they ditched and nobody died that's amazing like not too much water but not too little water and so just enough and and if if the purser said oh we're 
we're on the bottom of the seabed and then the they're really in seven feet you have to assume that their windows were actually looking out into daylight not into water so they yeah, were probably exactly. <laughs> yeah i'm like uh and, but yet i'm seeing the sun in the clouds yeah and the emergency exit doors were at just the right height so that they could still open it's not like the water was creating a pressure situation where they couldn't open the doors the exit doors were still above water so they just popped open the emergency exit doors and they inflated the rafts and the passengers just started calmly getting in the lifeboats but on land things were not calm because whoever called in this accident told the coast guard that the plane had flipped over and was upside down in the water which is a very different situation and so the coast guard thought that they were going to show up and do a search and recovery mission they assumed that everybody was not everybody but they assumed that most people were either gravely injured or dead but then they show up and it's just a bunch of people calmly waiting in lifeboats and i imagine that was probably the best day ever for the coast guard oh yeah <laughs> just like hey we're in you know just two and a half miles out in the ocean calmly waiting for you to pick us up how's it going good oh. good <laughs> thanksgiving's almost here it's november 22nd and so then they tow everybody the coast guard tows all the passengers in their lifeboats back to this yacht harbor called coyote point and i'm sure that all the rich people all the rich californians and their yachts got a huge kick out of seeing all of these airline passengers being rescued next to their yacht <laughs> oh my gosh and and two and a half miles that's a long way to be towed in like i have this image of a coast guard with a bunch of little inflatable lifeboats tied together behind <laughs> yeah that's literally what they were doing you know because it was like um in castaway during the plane crash scene you know tom hanks gets in that little inflatable raft and it's small it was just like that they're just these little rafts that you sit on and the coast guard tows them like you said a long way over two miles in bad weather back to this yacht harbor and it's it's just a miracle that even at that point like somebody totally could have fallen out of the raft or or i don't know there's so many things that could have gone wrong at any given point in the story and it just kept not going wrong and everybody kept being fine it's just amazing oh my gosh it's so amazing yeah because all they need if they're all tied together and they're being towed in they just need one big wave to come in yeah. Exactly. They just flip over. (laughs) It's like, haha, you survived a plane crash, but now I'm going to flip over your life drafts. (laughs) Sucks to suck. That totally could have happened. (laughs) Uh, So, but you might be wondering Captain Asso, what's he doing? Where is he? Everybody's gone except for him. Captain Asso totally owns up to his mistake, and he owns up to it so much that. Not only did he check that everybody was off the plane before he left, but after everyone left, he went through the plane and got everybody's personal belongings and gathered all of them up and put them in a raft and then brought everybody's personal stuff and himself back to shore. And I thought that was really sweet to go through and get people's belongings because they were told to leave them. And I, I assume that he probably felt really terrible. So he was he was really going the extra mile to make up for the 
two miles that he didn't fly to shore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that is very kind of him. I'm sure yeah. they appreciated getting their their blow up pillow and their blanket <laughs> and their purse and yeah I'm sure that meant a lot once they realized well I'm not gonna die and I have my purse returned to me oh yeah because I mean it's an international flight I imagine everybody probably left their passports on the plane yeah right so I'm actually now that I think about it if I was in that situation I would be absolutely thrilled to see my passport like okay whew, everything's all good I survived the plane crash, and I have my passport. Life is good. So, what happened here? Why did this happen? Why did we end up in the ocean over two miles away from shore? Well, Captain Asso said that, you know, he had been air traffic control contact the entire flight, and air traffic control themselves said that the captain had never deviated from the flight path. He'd never done something because he felt like it. But... The captain decided to try out that new automatic coupled ILS approach for the first time, and that's when things started to go awry. Uh, Because, again, he'd never done it before, and when you don't do something before, you don't know the correct protocols to follow. And he did not follow the Japan Airlines protocol on what to do when you use an automatic coupled ILS approach. Because if he had done the right thing, and if he'd followed procedure he would have captured the localizer first and then the flight director and autopilot coupling would decide what the glide slope would be for the final approach. But what ended up happening is that Aso waited until the plane reached like 2,500 feet to capture the localizer, which was way below the minimum altitude recommended by Japan Airlines. So in a nutshell, By the time the plane got in communication with the radio signals on the ground, they were too low for the plane to create a healthy glide slope. So it just did the best it could, but its altimeter was broken, so it didn't know that. And it was just a huge mess. And then another substantial factor that was not technically, it wasn't technical with the plane, but there was a big language barrier between Aso and Hazen, because Hazen was American. And so there was a number of communication breakdowns between the two of them, and that definitely contributed to the mistakes that led up to the ditching. Wow, that's understandable. And so probably, I wonder if Hassan or Hassed had ever um, used that automatic system before, and if he knew that it was being done incorrectly, but he couldn't say anything because of the language barrier. Yeah, I mean, that's very possible, because... One of the things that, I mean, they train you to do a ton of different things when you start using a new type of plane, because you have to get certified for every new plane if you're a pilot. So, and he just completed his training for the DC-8, and he only had 18 hours of flight time, but I bet that that training was fresh in his mind. So, I didn't see anything that said one way or another whether or not he knew how to use an automatic coupled ILS approach, but... It is possible that if they had talked and had easy communication about the approach, I I think it's possible that the co-pilot would have said, hey, you need to do the localizer capturing much higher in the air. Uh, But it didn't happen. And during the investigation, the, the authorities were, you know, they were talking to the captain and they just asked him point blank, like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? This is a huge mistake. And Captain Asso said very frankly, quote, as you Americans say, 
I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. <laughs> English then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he knows the most important parts of English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and this actually worked in his favor because everybody thought it was hilarious and there were no deaths. Nobody got seriously injured. And so his, you know, super blunt and honest admission of failure not only saved him from losing his career, but it kind of became famous. And now saying I fucked up is known as the Asso defense. (laughs) But also the plane itself was able to be recovered from the bay. And after 34 tons of salt water were drained from the aircraft, Japan Airlines was now faced with the question of, you know, the plane is intact, but obviously it's damaged. What do we do with it? And we're very far away from Tokyo. So something has to be done with it in America. And United Airlines made an offer and they said, hey, if you pay us $4 million, we will completely refurbish your entire plane in the U.S. And Japan Airlines said, okay, deal. So United got paid $4 million. They fixed up the plane. And then the plane went back to Japan Airlines and it actually flew with them for another 15 years. And then it was sold to Okada Air. And then it was sold again to Airborne Express. And then it was finally scrapped in 2001. So in all, that plane flew for nearly 40 years, the vast majority of which was after it crashed into the ocean. And I'm sure none of the passengers knew that. Oh, no. Can you imagine getting on a plane and the captain's like, so have you ever heard of Japan Airlines 2? <laughs> You're on that plane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if I'd be happy or sad. <laughs> Keep an eye out for the closest sandbar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Have your life vest in your lap the whole flight, just in case. <laughs> so oh, Captain also was sadly banned from flying passenger planes temporarily. He did get, he went through a lot of tests and then he was allowed to fly passengers again, but he was demoted to first officer and he never got to be captain again. And that's okay. He did crash a plane into the ocean and he, the only reason he didn't kill everybody was luck. Uh, so I, I think that just owning up to it and saying, you know what? I fucked up. I think that saved his career. And I don't know. I I think it's good that he went back to flying because it was partially the plane's fault too because the altimeter was broken. So it wasn't all his fault. But there's definitely a lesson to be learned in saying, you know what? It wasn't all my fault, but I should just own up to all of it and just be honest. So I think that that probably did a huge favor to him. That's right. And also two heads are better than one. So the moral of the story is if you've never done something before and you have someone next to you that may have, then you can always ask them. Yeah. And they can. So. Yeah, exactly. And even if the other person hasn't done it before, they still have a lot of experience. And so, you know, two heads is better than one. Work together. If you're if you happen to find yourself flying over the San Francisco Bay and you don't know how high you are, <laughs> ask the person next to you. Um, <laughs> so, so that's all we have for the flight. But now we have listener mail because I love listener mail. And it's the last episode of 2022. 
and I wanted to give you guys a shout out and because you're the best and my podcast would be totally lame without you guys because without you guys I would just be screaming into a microphone about planes for no reason. So we actually have not one but two listeners from Australia who wrote in. So Carolyn, almost my name, excellent name, uh, she wrote in and she had some beautiful pictures of Australia that she had actually taken from the air. And in the email, she'd written, oh, this was my view while listening to your most recent episode. And I was like, ooh, she's brave. She was listening to an air disaster podcast on a plane. (laughs) I'm so superstitious. I can't even edit the episodes on a plane. If I, even if it means I'm going to be kind of crunched for time, I refuse to do anything about this podcast on a plane. So Carolyn, you're very brave. I admire your bravery that you listen to this podcast in a plane. You're a badass. That's for sure. Yeah. And she also included this really beautiful picture of Sydney when her plane was coming into land. And so it was this really beautiful picture of the city kind of on uh, like the shoreline. And so you could see the ocean meeting Sydney and all the different boats and the beautiful buildings. And now I really want to go to Australia. So thanks for sending those in, Carolyn. Um, And if I ever go to Australia, I'll see if we could maybe do a live show because apparently I have a lot of lovely Aussie listeners down there, including Carly. And Carly wrote in with the subject line, thanks for your awesome podcast. And that made my heart grow three sizes. Thank you for being an awesome listener. Uh, She wrote, quote, just listened to the first of your Lockerbie episodes and really enjoyed it. Can't help thinking you must be gobsmacked at the timing after the news today. I'm looking forward to hearing the rest and I'm going back through earlier episodes now. I listened to the Sully pod. As someone who has watched too many air crash investigation episodes, I was screaming at the way they portrayed the NTSB. Sully's autobiography is actually really well worth a read and it's much more accurate than the movie. My husband and I live in Australia, and we have watched pretty much every air crash investigation available, and when we were watching the new episodes, we used to play Spot the Problem, and we'd watched enough that we were pretty good at guessing. I loved the Avianca episode, especially your guest. That was Alex. Hi, Alex, if you're listening. Uh, My husband is an avid flight simmer as well. A suggestion would be to cover the La Mia Flight 2933 crash that killed the Brazilian football team. That was another Colombian-related crash, and gosh, what a combination of fails that was. Keep up the great work, and I look forward to your episode 3 of Lockerbie. Oh, and the Air New Zealand Erebus crash. I grew up in New Zealand, so this one is particularly poignant. Um, So thank you for the email. That was awesome. And Carly, it sounds like if you and your husband are able to figure out the cause of the crash before the investigation segments of air crash investigation episodes, that's pretty impressive. Whenever I watch the episodes, I'm like, whoa, what happened? I don't know. I have no idea. And then at the end of the episode, the investigator's like, well, the the cause was a tail strike 22 years ago. And I'm always flabbergasted at how they figure it out. So, but Carly and her husband, you know what's up. You have such smart and kind listener. Right? I really do. I'm so lucky. You guys are so nice and everybody's so smart. I feel like being a plain nerd and you have to be a special type of nerd to be a plain nerd and I'm glad that we're all plain nerds together <laughs> and um I'd actually never heard of the Lamia flight or the Air, Lu- Air New Zealand Erebus crash but 
I looked both of them up and we're definitely doing those episodes next year because those stories are insane. And I, I won't spoil anything for those of you who haven't heard of them before. And also, I don't want to spoil the future episodes, but all you need to know is that those are certainly on the list for 2023. So thank you so much, Carly. You're awesome. And last but certainly not least, we have Big Joe. I actually don't know their real name, but their email address has Big Joe in it. So I've just nicknamed them Big Joe. And Big Joe sent me an email with a link to a news article uh, the day that the Lockerbie arrest news broke. And his email said, quote, just saw this story. After listening to last week's episode coincidence i think not and then it had a little thinking emoji and <laughs> that made me laugh and I, I have to say i was also really surprised when the news broke about lockerbie because you know it had been 34 years since the lockerbie crash and then this big arrest just happens to occur during the tiny three-week time frame that we're airing the lockerbie episodes on the podcast so that was a pretty crazy coincidence i really appreciate it appreciated everybody that wrote in and sent me news articles and just let me know what was going on um yeah this email from big joe is the first news that i saw of it so so thank you for sending that in and they also sent me an additional article recently about a united flight where five people had to go to the hospital due to extreme turbulence and i feel like extreme turbulence is becoming really not really common but i think it's becoming more common now so long story short Big Joe always keeps me up to date on the news, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for writing in, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, 2022 was a crazy year, and it was a great first year of the podcast, thanks to you guys. Um, I feel really lucky that you guys feel like tuning in each week to listen to these stories, and I appreciate every single one of you. It's important that we keep these stories alive, and, and we're doing it, guys. We're doing it. Being plain nerds keeping the history alive but so thanks for an amazing year nancy thanks for being with me today oh my goodness thank you i'm so happy to close out 2022 with you and with this great podcast and also with a happy story yeah exactly and nobody died nobody died <laughs> and then i was also thinking this was 1968 you had said and in in november of 68 right that's yep. when this Japan, number two. My sister was in high school and went to Japan with her high school band in the summer of 69. So now I'm really curious if maybe she went on the same plane. Oh my gosh. I I bet she did because they kept the flight number like nothing. Nobody died. So they kept the flight number. That's so cool. I'm sure that your sister went on that. That is so cool. I know. I'm going to call and ask her if she remembers anything yeah. about the flight or like anything about, I'm pretty sure it must have been Japan Airlines because there weren't that many. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. You'll have to call her and, and tell me what she says because now I really want to know. But yeah, if she took Japan Airlines from San Francisco to Tokyo, this was the flight route. It was Japan too. So, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Only six months later too. Just amazing. Wow. It, the world is so small. The aviation world is even smaller. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for an awesome year in general. And I will see you guys in 2023. Bye. Bye. Bye.